0: section ten of the normans in european history by charles homer haskins this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter five normandy and france part two such scenes however are only the striking episodes in a series of campaigns which are confused and complicated and do not lend themselves to clear narration decisive engagements were rare each side seeking rather to wear out the other. Money was spent freely for allies and mercenaries, a contemporary called the struggle one between the pound sterling and the pound of Tours, and the advantage was on the side of the pound sterling by reason of their greater number. There was usually a campaign in the spring and summer, ending in a truce in the autumn which the church tried to prolong into a lasting peace, but which soon broke down in a new war the wars were for the most part border forays in which the country was burned and wasted far and wide to the injury chiefly of the peasants upon whom the burden of medieval warfare mainly fell first destroy the land then the enemy was the watchword booty and ransom were the object as well as military advantages so that even the contests between knights had their sordid side So definitely were they directed toward taking profitable prisoners, while feudal notions of honor might cause Richard to put out the eyes of fifteen prisoners, and send them to Philip under the guidance of one of their number who had been left one eye, whereupon Philip blinded an equal number of knights, and sent them to Richard under the guidance of the wife of one of them, in order, says his eulogist, that no one should think he was afraid of Richard or inferior to him in force and courage footnote Guillaume le Breton Philippe volume 5 lines 316 to 327 n The brunt of the war fell on Normandy and ultimately on the castles which supplied the duke's lack of natural frontiers to supplement the great interior fortresses of Caen Falaise Argentan Montfort and Rouen Henry I began the organization of a series of fortifications on the southern and eastern borders. Henry II, we are told, improved or renewed nearly all these strongholds, and especially Gisors the frontier gateway toward France, on which fortress the exchequer roll shows him expending £2,650 in a single year. These castles, remains of many of which are still standing, were typical of the best military architecture of their age, but they were inferior in strength and scientific construction to the great fortresses of Christian Syria, such as Croc or Margot, which seem to have gone back to Byzantine and even Persian models. A keen warrior like Richard had not spent his two years in Palestine without gaining an expert knowledge of Eastern methods in the art of war we are not surprised to find that he had saracen soldiers and syrian artillery with him in his norman campaigns and that he made large use of oriental experience in strengthening his defences his masterpiece of course was chateau gaillard the saucy castle on the seine controlling the passage of the river and its tributaries in that region of the norman vexin which was the great bone of contention Between the Plantagenets and the French kings. Having first expropriated at great expense the lord of the region, the Archbishop of Rouen, he fortified the adjacent island of Andely and laid out a new town on the bank. This he surrounded with water and reinforced with towers and battlements, protecting the whole with a stockade across the river and outlying works farther up. Then, on the great rock above, he built the fortress with its triangular advance work its elliptical citadel and its circular keep surrounded by a fosse cut almost vertically out of the rock there was no dead angle such as permitted sappers to reach the base of rectilineal walls but instead a sloping base down which projectiles might ricochet nor was there as in the corners of square towers any part of the surrounding area which could not be reached by direct fire from within the approaches and the fosse says dieu la foi were covered by the fire of the garrison right up to the foot of the scarp and no sapper could touch any point in towers or walls provided that the fortress was under the direction of an experienced commander Le Château Gaillard, in Mémoires de l'Académie des Inscriptions, Volume Thirty Six, Chapter One, Page Three Hundred Thirty, and Footnote: This qualification is important, for the new type of fortification was designed for an active defence, one might almost say an offensive defence, and not for the mere passive resistance with which the older strategy had been content. The works at Andely carried on largely under richard's personal direction occupied more than a year of labor and cost about fifty thousand pounds angevin which we find distributed in the royal accounts over lumber and stone and hardware and among masons and carpenters and stone cutters and lesser laborers by the year 1199 richard had recovered his norman possessions save Guizor and certain castles on the border where philip never lost his foothold and he had raised an effective barrier to french advance in the valley of the seine strong allies were on his side and the diplomatic situation was decidedly in his favor never had philip been so hard pressed and even the friendly legate of the pope could secure for him nothing better than the retention of guisord in the truce which was then drawn up and then a second stroke of fortune greater even than the captivity of 1192, came to Philip's aid. Richard, impetuous and headstrong as ever, spoiled all by a raid on his Aquitanian rebel in which he lost his life. His energy, his military skill, and his vivid personality had concealed the fundamental weakness of his position against France. His removal meant the swift fall of the Norman Empire. At Richard's death, there were two possible successors, his younger brother John, whom he had designated heir, and his nephew Arthur, son of his elder brother Geoffrey and Duke of Brittany. There was enough uncertainty in feudal law to admit of a plausible case for either one, but Arthur was only twelve, and John quickly took possession, being crowned at Rouen in April and at Westminster in May. Arthur, however, had the following of his Breton, and what was more important the support of Philip Augustus, who used Arthur against John as he had used John against Richard and Richard against his father. Philip confirmed Arthur as Count of Anjou, Maine, and Touraine, and soon brought him to Paris, where he was betrothed to Philip's daughter. Nevertheless, the course of events at first favored John. Philip was in the midst of the great struggle with Pope Innocent III over the divorce of his Queen Ingeborg, and a treaty was signed in 1200, by which on giving up territory in the Norman border and in central France, and paying a large relief of 20,000 marks for his lands, John was confirmed in his control of Anjou and Brittany, while a visit to Paris, where he was splendidly received, seemed to crown the reconciliation. In a position, however, where all possible strength and resourcefulness were required, John's defects of character proved fatal. No one could depend upon him for loyalty, judgment, or even persistence, and he quickly earned his name of soft sword. Meanwhile, the legally-minded Philip, while spending money freely on John's followers and abating nothing of his diplomatic and military efforts, brought to bear the weapons of law. The revival of legal studies in the 12th century had given rise in Western Europe to a body of professional lawyers skilled in the Roman and the canon law, and quick to turn their learning to the advantage of the princes whom they served. Philip had a number of such advisers at his court, and they doubtless contributed to the more lawyer-like methods of doing things which made their appearance in his reign but it was feudal custom and not Roman law that he used against John. In law, John was Philip's vassal. Indeed, he had just confessed as much in the treaty of 1200, and as such was held to attend Philip's feudal court and subject himself to its decision in disputes with other vassals. It might be urged that the King of England was too great a man to submit to such jurisdiction and that the duke of normandy had been in the habit of satisfying his feudal obligations by a formal ceremony at the norman frontier still the technical law was on the side of the king of france and a suzerain had at last come who was able to translate theory into fact in the course of a series of adventures in poitou john carried off the fiance of one of his barons of the house of lusignan who appealed to his superior lord, the King of France. All this was in due form, but Philip was no lion of justice, eager to redress injuries for justice's sake. He waited nearly two years, John's visit to Paris, falling in the interval, and then, when he was ready to execute sentence, promptly summoned John before the feudal court of peers. John neither came nor appeared through a representative and the court, in April of 1202, declared him deprived of all his lands for having refused to obey his lord's commands or render the services due from him as vassal. The capture of Arthur temporarily checked Philip. The boy's murder by John in the course of 1203 simply recoiled on the murderer. Whether this crime led to a second condemnation by the court of peers, as was alleged by the French at the time of the abortive invasion of England in 1216, is a question which has been sharply discussed among scholars. What has now become the orthodox view holds that there was no second condemnation, but a clever case has recently been made by Powick, who, minimizing the importance of the accepted argument from the silence of immediate contemporaries, argues, on the basis of the annals of Margam, that there probably was a second condemnation in 1204. After all, the question is of subordinate importance, for Philip's effective action was based on the trial of 1202, and by 1204 John's fate was already sealed. The decisive point in the campaign against Normandy was the capture of Chateau-Gaillard, the key to the Seine Valley, in May 1204, after a siege of six months, which seems to have justified its designer, save for a stone bridge which sheltered the engineers who undermined the outer wall. Western Normandy fell before an attack from the side of Brittany, the great fortresses of the centre, Argentin, Falaise, and Caen, opened their gates to Philip, and with the surrender of Rouen, 24th of June, 1204, Philip was master of Normandy. John had lingered in England, doing nothing to support the defence, and when he crossed at last in 1206, he was obliged to sign a final surrender of all the territories north of the Loire, retaining only southern Poitou and Gascony. Gascony and England were united for two centuries longer, but the only connection was by sea. The control of the Seine and the Loire had been lost, and with that passed away the Plantagenet Empire. The results of the separation of Normandy from England have been a favorite subject with historians and especially with those who approach the Middle Ages from the point of view of modern politics and modern ideas of nationality. It all seems so natural that Normandy should belong with France and not with England. Nationality, however, is an elusive thing, and many forces besides geography have made the modern map. England in the Middle Ages had much more in common with Normandy than she had with Wales or Scotland, while in feeling, as well as in space, the Irish Sea was wider than the Channel. From the English point of view, there was nothing inevitable in the loss of Normandy. On the French side, the matter more obvious. If Paris was to be the capital, it must control the Seine and the Loire, and when it gained control of them, its position in France was assured. The possession of Normandy meant far more to France than to England, moreover the conquest of normandy cut england and france loose from each other the anglo-norman barons must decide whether they would serve the king of england or the king of france and they were quickly absorbed into the country with which they threw in their lot it was no longer possible to play one set of interests against another turned back on themselves the english barons met john on their own ground and won the great charter so that the loss of Normandy has a direct bearing on the growth of English liberty. When the Normans became French, concludes Powick, they did a great deal more than bring their national epic to a close. They permitted the English once more to become a nation, and they established the French state for all time. Footnote. The loss of Normandy, page 449. and footnote. Viewed in this way, The end of Normandy almost seems more glorious than Normandy itself, as was said of Samson, the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. But, of course, in the larger sense, the work of the Norman Empire was not ended in 1204. For one thing, the administrative organization of the Norman Duchy could not fail to exert an influence upon the French monarchy in spite of the great progress made by the Capetian kings of the 12th century, the Norman government still maintained its marked superiority as a system of judicial and financial administration, and Philip Augustus was not the man to neglect the lessons it might have for him. The nature and extent of Norman influence upon French institutions is a subject which is still dark to us and for lack of evidence may always remain dark but there can be little doubt that norman precedents were followed at various points in the development of the parliament of paris and in the elaboration of the french financial system in the main however the influence was inevitably in the other direction from france upon normandy not from normandy upon france there was it is true no sudden change philip respected vested interests both in the church and among the barons and preserved norman customs so that the duchy long retained its individuality of law of local organization and of character and secured its rights from louis x in a document of thirteen fifteen the Charte aux normands which has sometimes been compared in a small way to the great charter the coutume de normandie persisted like the customs of the other great provinces until the french revolution but it was a body of custom worked out under the influence of the central government and gradually absorbing the jurisprudence of the king's court if the norman exchequer continued to sit at rouen it was presided over by commissioners sent out from paris even that most characteristic of norman institutions trial by jury was insensibly modified by the new inquisitorial procedure of the thirteenth century and silently disappeared from the practice of the continent, as in law and government, so in culture and social life, the forces of centralization did their work none the less effectively because they were gradual, and Normandy became a part of France. There was it is true a period when Normandy was once more united to England, this time as a conquered country between fourteen seventeen and fourteen nineteen henry v subdued normandy in a series of well-conducted campaigns and he and his son remained in possession of the duchy until fourteen fifty during this period of english rule no effort seems to have been made to restore earlier conditions which had now been outgrown law local government fiscal organization continued unchanged English officials were, of course, appointed, and English immigration was encouraged at the expense of the lands of the Normans who had left the province. The first Norman university was founded at Caen in the reign of Henry VI. In the face, however, of all efforts at conciliation and fair treatment, the population remained hostile. The idea that the Englishman was a foreigner had grown up during two centuries of absence it was to crystallize definitely as the conception of french nationality took form through the work of joan of arc levis has reminded us footnote general view of the political history of europe translated by charles gross page sixty four that this war was not a conflict between one nation and another between the genius of one people and that of another nevertheless it continued and was fierce as well as long. From year to year, the hatred against the English increased. In contact with the foreigner, France began to know herself, like the ego in contact with the non-ego. Vanquished, she felt the disgrace of defeat. Acts of municipal and local patriotism preceded and heralded French patriotism, which finally blossomed out in Joan of Arc and sanctified itself with the perfume of a miracle out of france with the english they left france and france came into existence in this rapid growth of french national consciousness normandy had its full share and some of its great scenes were set on norman soil it was at rouen that joan of arc was tried and condemned by the inquisition it was in the old marketplace of this same city that the english soldiers discovered too late that they had burned a saint and so it came about that twenty years later the normans welcomed the troops of charles the seventh and passed finally under french sway proud of its past proud also of its provincialism and local peculiarities normandy was nevertheless french in feeling and interests and grew more french with time under the unifying force of the absolute monarchy the revolution, and the modern republic. It ceased to be a duchy in 1467. It ceased to be even a political division with the creation of the modern departments in 1790. Its last survival as an area recognized by the government, the ecclesiastical province of Rouen, disappeared with the final separation of church and state in 1905. The only unity which its five departments now retain is that of the history and tradition of a common past, of a petite patrie now swallowed up in the nation. Only at one point did the old Normandy really maintain itself against the forces of centralization, namely in the Channel Islands, those bits of France fallen into the sea and picked up by England, as Victor Hugo calls them. These were not conquered by Philip or his successors and have remained from that day to this attached to the english crown they still have their bailli and vicomte their knights fees and feudal modes of tenure the norman dialect is still their language the coutume de Normandie is still the basis of their law and one may still hear in disputes concerning property in jersey and guernsey the old cry of aro which preserves one of the most archaic features of norman procedure after all is said it is in england that the most permanent work of the normans survives they created the english central government and impressed upon it their conception of order and law their feudalism permeated english society their customs shaped much of english jurisprudence their kings and nobles were the dominant class in english government Freeman could never understand those who claimed that as he declared we English are not ourselves, but somebody else. The fact, however, remains that in a mixed race, and all races are to some extent mixed, there is no such thing as ourselves. And if the numerical preponderance in the English people is largely that of pre-Norman elements, the Norman strain has exerted an influence out of all proportion to its numerical strength. Without William the Conqueror and Henry the the English would not be themselves, whatever else they might have become. For a more specific illustration, let us come back once more to the jury. If the jury died out in Normandy, it survived in England, where it flourished in the fertile soil of the popular local courts. It spread to the British colonies and to the United States. It has in recent times been reintroduced on the continent. But it is still the same fundamental institution bound by direct continuity with the old Frankish procedure through the Norman inquests of the twelfth century. Wherever the twelve good men and true are gathered together, we can see the juries of Henry II behind them. In such matters, the Norman influence is thus as wide as the common law. We are all heirs of the early Normans. As Freeman well says, we can never be as if the Normans had never come among us. We ever bear about us the signs of his presence. Our colonists have carried those signs with them into distant lands, to remind men that settlers in America and Australia came from a land which the Normans once entered as a conqueror. Footnote. William the Conqueror, page 2. And footnote. Our survey of Norman history must perhaps stop here, but it needs to be rounded out in two directions we have been so busy with the external history of the norman empire and with the constitutional developments to which it gave rise that we have had no time to examine the society and culture of normandy in its flourishing period of imperialism we have been concentrating our attention so exclusively on the dominions of the plantagenets that we have left out of view that greater normandy to the South, which constitutes one of the most brilliant chapters of Norman achievement, and one of the most fascinating subjects of European history. These topics will be the themes of the three remaining lectures. End of section ten.